This podcast is brought to you by the Leafwing Center, helping children and families since 1999. Brought to you by the clinical treatment team at the Leafwing Center. This is the Autism Parent Helper Podcast. Welcome back. This is part two of our podcast regarding toileting issues. Let's talk about intervention. Intervention. So, so when we first started this, the research part for this podcast, uh, all, well, six of us did do our own research online. And uh, one thing that I have noticed, at least from my experience, is that there's not a lot. There's really not a lot of uh, research or papers out there regarding intervention. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's why even for our research for the assessment, we had to go back way back to 2010. Normally, we would like a three-year-old or even a two-year-old paper, but this one, because there is nothing available on the topic, Mm -hmm. we use Matson's 2010 paper. Now, how about your thoughts, guys? I'll speak speak really off the cuff on this one as a behavior analyst. You know, probably why I feel that is the case is maybe because we had this study in 1971, the Azrin and Fox study. It was so effective and such a seminal, foundational study that as a profession, we haven't really felt the need to kind of reinvent the wheel. So it's already there to some degree, and we don't need to reinvent it. Now we are in the process of, you know, hey, let's do things better. What can we do better? Uh, And so we were looking at, you know, we're going to look today, we're going to talk about that Azrin and Fox study in 71. And we're going to talk about a couple other studies that are more, more modern, more current, and um, but I think, you know, we'll point out some differences and some similarities and some strengths. And um, but I think that maybe in behavior analysis that we may feel that we have a, a pretty solid approach right now. And we're just at the tweaking stage. I don't know. That's just my thoughts. I could be totally off base. Mm-hmm. But well, I believe that is indeed the case, because even for me, uh, I probably read Azarina Fox when I was in grad school, which was years ago. But in practice, although I'm not really using their work as a source of information directly, in a way, I lean towards that direction anyway, like using some of the techniques that they have used as a behavior analyst, our training leads us to get to that, uh, to those interventions. And let's, before I get into that, let's talk more about this study. So. This was done, like Dr. Lubers has said, back in the 1970s. Yeah. Right? Yeah. There were nine males in a hospital ward, mm-hmm. all incontinent. Uh, ages were between 20 and 62 years of age, mm-hmm. all with a diagnosis of uh, intellectual disability. Anything else that I've missed there? I think you kind of covered, got it all covered yeah. there. Yeah, there. I mean, well, as we talk maybe a little bit more, we may get in a little bit more about the the uh, individuals in terms of their intellectual functioning. Some were lower, some were, you know, um, not as profoundly affected. You know, I think we can get later on into, you know, some folks required more training, longer periods of training, and then longer periods of maintenance. Mm-hmm. Um, but what was so interesting, you know, to me at least, is, you know, there's essentially what I kind of gleaned from it. There's about six components to this assessment. Um, and uh, and then one particular component that when I was rereading this article for our, our podcast today um, that I found so um, interesting to me was in 1971, they were using electronic devices to assess 
um, soiling. And I, and I kind of got the impression, I didn't really see this in the article, you know, <laughs> but I kind of got the impression that they almost kind of like, they, they almost kind of had this thing made just for this purpose, for yeah. this article, which is, you know, um, I, I was quite impressed, you yes. know, I was like, wow, I, they really went, that was pretty creative. Yeah, I mean, if you look, if you remember the actual article has a, a couple of diagrams as to, um, how they made those gadgets. Handwritten, by the way. Handwritten. Hand yeah. <laughs> Handwritten. Uh, yes. One of them is, I believe, uh, a moisture detector for pants, an yeah. enhanced moisture detector. Yes. Uh, which pretty much uh, a wire attaches to the insides of, let's say, an underwear. Yep. Uh, and then it will detect uh, moisture. Yeah. A little bit of moisture, it will trip. It will sound an alarm. Yeah. I believe uh, there will be a circuit box somewhere somewhere attached to uh, another pair, a, a garment. Like yeah, a shirt. yeah. And then once it detects moisture, it will go off. And the other one is well. So a couple wait, more details on this. Sorry, Ray, to interrupt, ahead, but Dr. there was Lewis. I found this really. Info. I found this. I found this so interesting. Yeah, I, I liked it too, but I think you like this one. Much I guess more than so. I yeah, I really, I really like these 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 old seminal articles. Right, you know, Beowulf and Risley. That's what I really like. So, uh, so you were talking about the moisture scene. Yes. So, um, they one of the caveats, one of the problems they had in the study was that um, excessive perspiration um, resulted in a false positive. So. Um, meaning that the alarm went off when um, somebody had excessive perspiration or was sweating too much. So they fixed that. The authors fixed that by putting a little piece of tape over the sensors, and it made them a little less sensitive and work just as they were intended to. Uh, the other thing I think is important to kind of mention about this one particular, and also the second one that Ray will tell us about in a second, I'm sure, but... The intention for these was not to um, alert the individual with the alarm that they were wet. So, you know, so Bob, who's wearing the device and Bob, who has a, uh, a toileting accident and um, wets himself, um, the, the intention of the, the uh, device that he's wearing, the, the undergarments with the electronic notification, is not to let Bob know that he's wet because the assumption was Bob knew. That was to let staff know um, or somebody know so that they could come and intervene and implement the, the procedure immediately without delay. So uh, previous to this, this um, device being used, it was assumed or implied in the article that um, at times there would be a soiling mm -hmm. and that individual in this particular setting might be wet or soiled mm -hmm. for some period of time mm -hmm. um, before it was noticed. Mm -hmm. And that's important for us in behavior analysis because we know when things happen, we want to react kind of quickly. Right yeah, both in a reinforcing way and also in a corrective way. So the longer we let it go without responding right away, the 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 weaker the connection is between our the event and our actions. So I thought it was really interesting on it that was. stuff. Yeah, absolutely. It's a great feedback tool for caregivers and practitioners because it gives us the opportunity to provide immediate feedback. And as we know, in ABA, it's all about immediacy when it comes to reinforcement and punishment mm -hmm. for those two concepts that have the desired effect the feedback does need to be immediate and also it takes into consideration the well-being of, of of the participants of the clients because then an adult knows okay there's been an accident so mm -hmm. then they don't have to 
um, be in soiled clothing for, for a very long time. Mm-hmm. And the intervention can be applied. So the other device um, was the the was uh, and you guys chime in here. <laughs> Go for it. I'll use everybody's help. <laughs> no, you're excited right now. I can tell. Go for it. <laughs> Embarrassed, really. Embarrassed. Go for um, it. <laughs> the other one was uh, and correct me, guys, if I'm not getting this right, but it was a. Uh, 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 a device that was put inside the toilet itself. So it was a, uh, yeah, uh, the toilet chair. Yeah. And so it was a plastic piece that was put in there. I don't know if there was, um, uh, you know, well, there was a sensor put on it um, that went behind the toilet. And the purpose for this was for um, when a, an individual successfully toileted um, either urine or feces, um, that um, the sound, the buzzer would sound or the notification would be given and staff would be able to provide reinforcement uh, in the form of, you know, um, primaries or edibles or, you know, treats. I think this was a, a half of a candy bar or three quarters of a candy bar. Is that what they said? That and social praise. And social praise. Yeah, exactly. And hugs, I think they even said maybe they gave him a hug or something or or something to that effect. So. Um, again, you know, I gotta, I have to say this is, this is kind of ingenuity at its best. You know, this is 1971. We're, we're not long out of the sixties. This is before the computer age, before artificial intelligence, before Elon Musk and, and all our, you know, super, uh, tech brilliant people. And in 1971, Azrin and Fox, you know, got the idea and then created this, these sensors, I believe. And, and that was, that's pretty impressive to me. Yeah. And very innovative. Yeah. Even though the wet alarm and the toilet signal are not as commonly used today, they are still available in wireless versions with, you know, the higher technology that are capable of sending, you know, the same signals and, and creating the same um, systems for practitioners or caregivers to provide immediate feedback. Yeah, th- there's probably an app for that now in the App Store, right? I wouldn't be surprised. <laughs> um, so the, the the interesting thing about this, and, and again, why I, you know, um, uh, you guys are right in joking with me about that I'm really interested in this article, this this Azrin and Fox article in 71, is because it's it has informed and, <clears throat> and uh, been cited and influenced so many of our more modern potty training approaches. So... I really wanted to revisit this and look at it and see what was being used, what was still current and relevant. And, um, and so there was essentially there were six components of this, you know? Um, so one of the things they did that was, uh, uh, I don't want to say unique to this study, but, you know, at least in my understanding of the literature was kind of newish or novelish, uh, was the artificial increasing of the frequency, uh, of urinations by, um, encouraging um, fluid consumption, and I think that's just a great use of motivating operations, which yeah. is a you know big principle in applied behavior analysis. And what that basically means is um, creating situations in which motivation functions to evoke a, a behavior that we're trying to to increase. Yeah. So increased fluid intake is is a great way to increase the motivation of having to go to the bathroom. And I think they were using a uh, fixed interval time schedule every half an hour. Mm -hmm. And this has been replicated in a lot of different studies, whether it's every half an hour or every 90 minutes, but the frequent and ongoing fluid intake Mm -hmm. in body training programs has been used and Mm -hmm. is, is effective in increasing the motivation 
Mm-hmm. Do I remember reading in the article, guys, correct me again if I'm wrong, do I remember reading in there that what they were saying that um, sort of the logic or the notion or what was underlying, so, you know, and if we're all wondering, like, well, why did they think that, you know, filling the kids or, the in this case, the adults full of liquids would be a good thing? What made them think that? Well, if I remember right, I read in the article it was saying something to the effect of that they thought more opportunities mm-hmm. Would be you know uh, captured, yeah, yeah, better, and they would allow them to use more reinforcement mm-hmm. or provide more exactly um, along the lines of more practice, I guess, you yep. know, for behavior and <laughs> reinforcer to come into contact and all yep. those associations to start yep. clicking together, you know, yeah, um, yeah, and that's what they try to do with that uh, the sitting the sit schedule is to make that association association between. I go pee, something good happens. Mm-hmm. I go poop, something good happens. Yeah, and that's what's missing, I guess. Uh, that connection, uh, like Doctor Lubers had said earlier, before maybe you know uh, these individuals who are left pretty much half the day soiled. Mm-hmm. There is no clicking. There is no reinforcement happening. Mm-hmm. At least this way, they void. They get a treat or snack or whatever it is that those individuals were getting way back then. And that is pretty awesome for this study, actually. Mm -hmm. Another component, too, which I thought was really cool, uh, uh, was the positive reinforcement. And this is so part of behavior Mm -hmm. analysis, was they use positive reinforcement for um, uh, appropriate toileting. Mm -hmm. And we'll get a little bit more into that in a bit. But, you know, everything from candy bars to sugared cereal to... Uh, social praise, you know, good jobs and, you know, great job, this and that. And if I remember right, maybe even hugs, you know, so some 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 physical reinforcement as well. So um, and then additionally, they use um, the um, shaping of independently toileting. So that was <clears throat> kind of developing the skills of walking to the toilet mm-hmm. And um, taking clothes down, you know, and sitting on the toilet and, and putting clothes back on. And, of course, you know, wiping and washing hands and all those things that are associated with that that make this a complex set of behaviors. And, mm-hmm. again, why I was saying it's kind of interesting that our two-year-olds get this. You know, our two- and three-year-olds can learn this um, uh, sometimes and um, that. So that was another one of those things. <clears throat> they also taught cleanliness training. And then provided some staff reinforcement procedures as well. So six components to this overall intervention. Um, And uh, they said immediately, the results of this were immediately 90% uh, reduced incontinence, you know, or incontinence was reduced by 90% and then eventually decreased to near zero. One of the benefits of RTT is having an intensive toilet training program for a short period of time for um, the acquisition of these toileting skills to be observed. I believe it's about 1 to 14 days for all the participants. Also, regarding maintenance, Mm -hmm. like, yes, they were doing so well in the three days that they were on, Mm -hmm. but two weeks after the training, it's all back to nothing. So that's really where it counts. Mm -hmm. When there is less supervision happening, when there is less support happening, what really happens to the behavior. And that's the strength of Fox and Nazarene's RTT method. The maintenance program is really working yeah. to the point that they were pretty much off 
uh, all nine participants were off the, the program in a matter of weeks. Mm-hmm. And these individuals were considered one of the toughest to work with I mean, yeah. during that time yeah. for the study. Yeah, and then, then you know, of course, we'll talk about this again a little bit more and uh, down the line. But the maintenance was, like you said, Ray, it was it was pretty. When I read the article again, um, I was again impressed at how detailed it was. You know, um, it was pretty structured, pretty planned out, and so it was a really well written maintenance mm-hmm. program. And I'm sure that contributed to these these gains, you know, lasting longer periods of time. Um, also, uh, this study focus mostly on urination. Mm-hmm. Um, they did not focus much on uh, number two. Mm-hmm. But uh, it was also affected by the, the, by the training program. Uh, there was some gains there too. Mm-hmm. And in terms of generalization, although th- there was really no data on this on the report on the paper, um, the staff from the hospital did report that uh, nighttime, uh toileting mm-hmm. has uh improved as well that was mm-hmm. not originally addressed by the study but apparently uh some of these folks were getting up at night to go to the bathroom on their own mm-hmm. which is pretty good i mean you teach one behavior in one setting one time you get the same behaviors or similar behaviors in a different time and that's generalization there's a lot of aba going on in this paper and that's why i share my feelings on this paper with uh, Dr. Lubers, it is one of those awesome ABA-based interventions. Mm-hmm. So, in terms of the reinforcement, too, those are these are awesome results, unexpected and great results. Um, going back to the reinforcement a little bit, you know, just to kind of give the listener a little bit um, of an idea of what how it was structured. Um, the authors say when an appropriate urination was signaled by the toilet bowl ar- apparatus. Remember that was the uh, electronic device that sensed. Um, liquid in the toilet bowl, the resident was given a large piece of a candy bar, mm-hmm. hugged and praised. Mm-hmm. So um, successful toileting, they earned a, a large piece of a candy bar. Who knows whether that was a quarter, a half, or two-thirds of that candy bar, um, but they got a large piece of a candy bar. And assuming, too, that the candy bar was uh, was a you know preferred edible, you know something that that person wanted to eat. Um, but additionally, there was another layer of reinforcement and that was for remaining dry. And here, for remaining dry, and this is, I think, what the, you guys were talking about with respect to the intervals. They set these intervals of, you know, um, we're going to check and see if you're dry, the individual is dry. And if they were dry at these intervals, they were giving more more edibles, and they were they, those edibles consisted of sugar-frosted cereal, you know, and M&M candies. And, and then they were also praised for having dry pants. And, um, and that was on an interval like about every five minutes. So again, for the listener, um, if we wanted to think about what does this mean? How does this translate to um, real world our kids? Um, it, the idea would be essentially if uh, we set up a system where we checked our you know son or daughter every five minutes. And then every five minutes, if they were dry when we checked them, they got to earn a little bit of cereal or a little bit of M&Ms. So they got reinforced for that. So there were two layers of this reinforcement um, that were going on. And I, um, it was really, really interesting. And I think they also go on to, to say another layer of reinforcement, maybe not initially intended, but that was, was, um, um, was the drinks that were given out every half an hour um, that the individuals 
enjoyed those drinks. Um, so, so again, I guess why I'm saying this is that uh, a good part of this intervention plan, this uh, Azrin and Fox intervention, was reinforcement based. So it was positive behavior supports. It was positive programming, reinforcement based, um, and um, and probably that contributed to its success and it, the the way that everybody seemed to like the study and the results at the end. Someone might say, well, Ray, John, Siobhan, mm -hmm. and Manjeet, mm -hmm. it's not really all positive, isn't it? It's not. No. No. Um, they did have some punitive uh, consequences there. Some however, procedures. However, yeah. it, they're very natural. Right. You know, it's not like, oh, you dirtied yourself, you cleaned the house, or you washed yeah. my car. No, it's still within reason. For example, um, they'll have to undress themselves, Take a bath, put away the dirty clothes that they've soiled, mm -hmm. and uh, clean up the area. The area. And mm -hmm. these are very acceptable, uh, I would say, consequences. Yeah. Um, so it's not out there. Right. Know? Um, and they're very informative. They're very corrective in a way. And the idea being, like you pointed out earlier, Ray, we want or the researchers wanted successful toileting mm -hmm. incidents to be paired with desirable yeah. items and, and behaviors yeah. and actions. On the other hand, that when there were accidents, schedule a reinforcer reinforcement is really there, you know. Absolutely. Uh, but so, on the other hand, they wanted for accidents to mm -hmm. be associated with, okay, this is not so fun yeah. having to clean up and I have to change mm -hmm. and take a shower in the mm -hmm. middle of the night. And so they both kind of work in they tandem. Work together. To create the I'm sure positive it would result. Have been, it, it was faster because of that, you know. They also followed uh, with a one-hour period after the accident where uh, it was kind of like a timeout phase yeah, yeah. where no, no uh, preferred drinks or edibles, uh, no social reinforcement uh, was offered as well. So. Yeah, and while we're in the topic of punishment, let's have a little clarification of that, okay? Punishment really is something that happens that pretty much stops or eliminates the, the behavior that we don't want to happen. Mm -hmm. Punishment is not about hitting or slapping. No, no it, is, it can be anything. Right. Mm -hmm. And for this study, it is really just that corrective measures that yeah. they implemented. When, like I said earlier, it's still within reason. You know, so is it fine? For me as a behavior analyst, I, it's fine. You know, um, for the study back then in the 1970s. Mm -hmm. Oh, definitely. <laughs> Absolutely. 1970s. That's why I said 1970s. Yeah, we would yeah. be more creative probably this era, but mm -hmm. uh, back then that's what they did. But even for back then, uh, it's still within reason. Yes. It's still within reason. Oh, yeah. Definitely. I mean, Absolutely. I, I, even for my own child. You know, when you said the word punishment, right? Yeah, it, it has a, yeah. it's a very strong word to use in our field. You know? yeah. So for us, you know, as a behavior analyst, we, when we get a chance, we want to clarify that topic you know, when we get a chance. Yeah. And furthermore, guys, just to, you know, to kind of round out the, the components of this intervention. So they taught dressing skills, which we talked about a little bit in the beginning. But, um, you know, they were they, they found that these individuals needed to know how to to learn how to to take their clothes off to toilet and then to put their clothes back on to toilet. So there was there was a skill that needed to be trained as well. Um, they utilized modeling. Um, uh, which is kind of early um, um, uh, application of modeling here. And the, they, use, they utilize it, though, not like we utilize it now. 
nowadays we use video a, uh, a lot. Um, and you will talk about some articles later on in our podcast that talk about the use of modeling and the various types of modeling that are most uh, effective. But this was modeling where, um, you know, you can imagine maybe sort of a locker room-ish kind of bathroom where it was more um, a multi-person bathroom with multiple toilets. And I'm going to assume maybe not dividers between toilets. Um, and so they were talking about in this particular setting that the individuals toileting there served that were toileting appropriately served as models mm -hmm. for each other and that there was a benefit for that. So that was interesting as well. And then, of course, like I said earlier, like we said earlier, um, the independent, um, you know, or going to the toilet that actually needed to be trained or taught to these individuals as well, because that skill did not mm -hmm. exist. So it was a it was a very interesting, comprehensive, and you know, thorough way of looking at um, teaching toileting to people that needed it. So uh, I'm not sure if we've gone this gone over this information earlier, but so how long did it take? So for this study, they used three days to collect baseline data. Mm -hmm. A day is eight hours. Uh, this for the training period. The mean, the average for the training for these individuals to learn to toilet is six days. Mm -hmm. That's the average. The range is one to 14 days. Mm -hmm. So somebody took one of these participants well, took they were 14 ready. days <laughs> and, oh, yeah. and, and one took one. one. Ready. Yeah. Yeah, they were ready, you know, yeah. but 14 days maximum. Two weeks. Folks, that is awesome for eight hours a day. Yeah. And uh, that's one of the benefits, I guess, of this study is that it was done in a hospital setting. Well, it, and if you don't mind, if we can talk about that a little bit oh, sure. more as it applies to parents, guys. Because okay. you guys probably have, we have, and then maybe the listener has or has not ever thought about, okay, it's time for me to start mm -hmm. potty training my son or daughter. We need to start addressing this. Mm -hmm. When we've been asked this, I know I when I've been asked this, I've typically said, you know, we can potty train whenever we need to, you know, mm -hmm. throughout the calendar year. However, it might be easiest mm -hmm. if we target a school break. Yes. So like Good summer. Yes. 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 Right. And so, Manjeet, Ray, where you guys are going with this is, you know, because this thing is an eight-hour intervention mm -hmm. or 12 hours or it takes a good portion of the day if you're the child, the son or daughter, your son or daughter or loved one is going to school, then that's going to limit the amount of time that we can do this potty training program with them. So, so um, typically, I've recommended in the past that you know wait for a wait for a break, wait for spring break, wait for winter break, and wait for summer break. Now, now that I've read, re-familiarized myself with the length of time, this one to fourteen days, and the fact that one individual needed fourteen days, uh, and the average was six. Um, I'm thinking that maybe now I might more often recommend summer as the time to do that in case we have a, we don't, you know, cause we, we don't necessarily want to start a training program, uh, and then stop or have it being yes. complete or interrupted, you know? 
So I think more than likely now, I'll make the recommendation of doing it during summer mm -hmm. so that we have a good period of time to be able to dedicate to this. That way the consistency is there and the a, su is not a sufficient mm -hmm. number of learning opportunities can be created or captured mm -hmm. as well. Mm -hmm. Another thing, I just a little anecdote, a little fact, is when they were talking about how much fluids these individuals were taking on any given day, you know, drinking, um, they were talking about 25 cups, so um, quite a bit, you know, maybe, yeah, it's a lot of, lot of liquid, um, so you can imagine it probably really increased the frequency of how often they needed the bathroom. Um, what about maintenance, you guys? What was the, you know, this is a pretty pres prescriptive, or should we talk about results or should we talk about maintenance? Maybe talk about results a little bit? So they averaged, like, I think I'm seeing 15 urinations per day, and one bowel movement um, every third day per resident. So the frequency of bowel movements was fairly low, obviously, you know, so you're not going to catch that a whole lot mm -hmm. in that naturally occurring opportunities. Um, but 15 urinations gives you a reasonable amount of time to practice that behavior. Um, Accidents decreased significantly. Yep. Um, mm -hmm. For the training procedure, the residents averaged about two accidents mm -hmm. per eight-hour recording period per patient. After the training, the number of accidents decreased to about one accident every four day, four days. I think uh, for each resident in the study, it's at least eighty decrease, eighty percent decrease of uh, the accidents during the first twelve days for of training. Mm. So uh, another thing I want to kind of talk about too, you guys, and this is something that also stuck, uh, struck me and reminded me again of this, um, is they talk about, we, they talk a little bit about readiness skills here. And I'm going to read to you what's said in the article. It says five of the nine residents seem to possess voluntary control over their bladders and bowels um, at the very start of training. And that meant, um, that was indicated uh, by they had no accidents in their pants during the entire first day um, or almost immediate elimination upon, and, excuse me, almost immediate elimination upon sitting on the toilet, um, if it occurred at all. And then three, external signs that the resen uh, resident was straining to eliminate in the toilet. So those three things indicated to them that they had some level of um, bladder or bowel control. Now, I say that because then they go on to say the existence of voluntary control over elimination did not assure independent toileting. So um, what we talk about a lot, you know, the, 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 the literature here kind of contradicts what we talk about a lot, and that is that we need our kids to have readiness skills. Um, I guess that's probably rooted in the developmental psychology, you know, uh, literature, probably the readiness skills. Um, but this study is suggested, um, again, I'll read it, the existence of voluntary control or the existence of being able to have readiness skills, um, a voluntary, voluntary control over elimination did not assure independent toileting. So though the person that those or the person or those people that had those skills did not necessarily learn these skills quickly. And those that did not have them, the readiness skills or the voluntary control, um, were not necessarily more delayed or more difficult to train. 
So just a, a little bit more drilling down on the results, it was saying <clears throat> in terms of the reduction of incontinence, it says before training, the residents averaged about two accidents per eight-hour day per patient. So two accidents in an eight-hour day per patient or per, per resident. After training, the number of accidents decreased to about one accident every fourth day or every four days, yeah, per resident. Yeah, so it went from two per day to now one every fourth day. So much less frequent, you know, good success, um, um, you know, good results there. Additionally, like we said earlier, I think, Ray, you mentioned this about the um, unexpected benefit of um, with uh, number two as well. Um, um, it said something... Um, before training, the most incontinent resident averaged um, four accidents. Oh, sorry, guys. Oh, the majority of the accidents were urinations. Here we go. This is where I notes to myself here. Um, prior to training, an average of two pants defecations, soilings, occurred per day for all the nine residents combined. So all nine of them, um, there are about two accidents per day. Um, after training... Um, uh, they averaged about one-tenth of a soiling um, per day um, across all nine of them. So the, the gains for defecation was actually higher than the urination. Than urination, <laughs> yes. It was very and interesting. it was not directly you yeah. know, or as oftenly addressed during yes. training. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's we love that in behavior analysis. <laughs> when we try, we work on one thing and we get another get something thing. something for free. For free, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, so really, really interesting study. What is there anything else we want to? Well, oh, there was also a nighttime benefit, right? Yes. What was the deal with um, that? I don't think they collected data on it. It was more like uh, self reports. Mm. But uh, although they did not address nighttime urination or bedwetting, uh, <clears throat> some staff have reported that those individuals included in the program were getting up at night to, to, to go, go to the, the bathroom. bathroom. Because the correct habits were reinforced. Yes. 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 So yes. that is, for me, right. they didn't say it is generalization. It is a form of it. I'll take that as a generalization. Yes, that's a generalization. <laughs> yeah, that is in, in the strictest yes, uh, sense of the word. And I think bringing it back to our, you know, our families a little bit, why, you know, that's of importance. You know, I definitely have heard in the past um, where, um, you know, we've been working on, on interventions, you know, um, and it's like, okay, we have a plan during the day, but then, you know, um, maybe the family doesn't feel confident and doesn't want the bed wet and they'll put the child back in a pull-up or a diaper at night to avoid any nighttime accidents. And as we'll see later, that might be counterproductive, you know, putting the diaper back on. Um, um, but I think that, that maybe I think there might be a takeaway from this for the parents in the sense that um, if we work on the training during the day, we may also get a nighttime benefit as well. Exactly. Yeah, unexpected but welcomed nighttime benefit. So other thoughts on this, guys, uh, before we transition over to some other more um, current articles? Mm -hmm. Um, also regarding the maintenance, I think it's super important that, you know, once we have success with a certain intervention or, or a combination of interventions that we really want to maintain those results. So for the parents out there who do have success using 
a few different methods that we discussed. Um, maintain those. Have a plan in place. Thin it out gradually, just like what was done in this study. And that's a way to um, do a few things to ensure there is no uh, reversal of the positive results and to just maintain ongoing success. Final comment, you know, to kind of leave us all thinking about this. And this is what Azrin and Fox write on page 98 of their study. It says, Thus, the present rationale conceptualized continence as a complex operant reaction to social factors rather than as an associative reaction of a single muscle to internal stimuli. What that means in common sense is their feeling was that um, appropriate toileting was uh, a behavior that was responsive to social variables and consequences and social influence more so than a behavior that um, was purely under the control of my body is telling me I need it, I need to go. So in the study, when you look at, if you read through the study, you can see where they could make that conclusion based on the results they had with these nine individuals. So I thought that was really interesting because I know a lot also that we sometimes tend to think of that that behavior of um, toileting is really um, uh, happening as a result of the signal we get in our body. Azrin and Fox propose um, slightly different that there are some social mitigating or controlling factors that we can you know, work with and use to our, our, um, our benefit. This concludes part two of this podcast. For more insight from the LeafWing Center, please visit the LeafWing Center website and blog page at leafwingcenter.org. Email us at info at leafwingcenter.org or visit us at your favorite social media outlet. Feel free to submit questions or comments about this or future podcasts, and we will put links to information discussed in today's show on the website. We look forward to next time. Thank you.